0: Welcome, everybody. I am Jesse Mogul, and thank you for joining us on the American Contingency Podcast. We are a united nationwide community of steadfast Americans ready for any challenge that comes our way. We inform, equip, and train so you can prepare, respond, and recover from any man-made or natural disaster or situation. And we're going to get right into this because we have our one and only Tom Rigsby here. And today, we are going to be discussing the 2024 Adventure Challenge happening in every single region here in the United States throughout the year of 2024. If you are already a member, then surely you've heard about this through your regional coordinators. After you've done listen to this episode, for those of you who aren't members, if you'd like to be able to become a member so you can join in our adventure challenge, there will be a link in the show notes. And by all means, go to AmericanContingency.com, hit join, and you can join for literally less than the cost of a value menu item at a fast food restaurant. I mean, come on, what a deal. Let's get on the microphone with Tom Rigsby so we can discuss the 2024 American Contingency Adventure Challenge, because we got a lot to share with you today. What is something, Tom, that you would want everybody who's already a member or potential members to understand about the 2024 American Contingency Adventure Challenge?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's three things. Uh one is it's supposed to be fun. So let's have fun with it. It's a way. To practice and demonstrate your proficiency and some of the skills that it takes to be better prepared. And it's a contest, but we do that to make it fun. So, number one is have fun. Number two is everybody can participate. There is a way for everyone to participate. Um, whether you are a contestant, whether you uh, are working on the course, your station proctor, you are an actor, you are support. There's something for everybody to do, and and everybody should uh, participate. And number three kind of goes along with that. There's something for everyone, no matter what your skill level is. So even if you're just getting started, because you can choose to compete in a basic category, an intermediate category, or an advanced category, the tasks remain the same, but the conditions and the standards change a little bit to adapt it to your skill level. So. No matter what your skill level is, everybody can participate, and even if you think you're an expert at all things, which may or may not be the case, <laughs> that's where you find yourself, and I would encourage you to participate by teaching others what you already know. So literally, everybody can participate, and I would love to see that happen.
0: You had mentioned that there being different levels, right? So let's just go with beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Let's pull one of these out specifically so you can just paint a picture so everybody gets a feel for what it is you're saying when you do that. And I think a, a really fun one to run through would be building a fire. What would be the beginner to intermediate to advanced level of that?
1: Sure. So uh, everybody has the opportunity to carry uh, you know, what you have on your person in a backpack as you go through the course. One of the tools that you should have in your pocket or in your backpack is a lighter. So, if I am competing at the basic level, then I get to use whatever I have on me, which includes a lighter. So, literally, all I've got to do is know how to pile up, you know, stack the fire and light it. It has to be self sustained within 10 minutes, to be able to put it out. And that, that's it. That, if you're at the basic level, if you're at the intermediate level, Then we take a couple of things away from you, like you can't use a lighter, nothing with a sustained flame. So no lighter, no torch. You have to use a striker, a lens, something else to start the fire. Then the standard remains the same. So you have to have a sustained, self-sustaining fire within 10 minutes and then at the end be able to put it out. And then if you're competing at the advanced level, all the materials around you are wet.
0: I knew that I. I don't even know if we've ever discussed that, but I had to assume that that would be what the advanced one would be because I. I feel like I got you at the at the beginner intermediate, but that advanced one, everything being wet, and now trying to light it with a a flint and steel, it just seems like it would be a very challenging ordeal.
1: Well, you know, if you don't have one of these, then you should have one of these, which is a little fire starting kit, um, and it's got like everything in there that you need. Excellent. I mean, and, and so that's kind of the point. I, you know, not only is this a, a practice and demonstration of proficiency with your skills, but it also will kind of demonstrate for you how some of the products or tools, you know, all that kind of works together to help you be better prepared.
0: You know, there's so many of these on this list I want to run through, just give people an idea of the scope of of this challenge and why it's going to be so beneficial to do. I mean, uh, purifying water for drinking comes to mind. I literally have daydreams about what I would do to create water in a situation where it is not just already in a container for me. When I think about the beginner, intermediate, and advanced of that, we don't have to spend too much time within those three, but as much as like purifying water for drinking, making sure that you have food uh, with you, or if you don't, where you might find that what are some ways that people are going to be able to learn about water and how they can be able to create it for themselves in the wilderness
1: again at the beginner level if you've got a sawyer or a live straw in your backpack you're good to go right because you can i think the standard is create a pint or maybe maybe it's a quart of clean drinking water kind of the same way building a fire gets progressively more difficult and we take a few things away from you, then we do the same thing with water. Food is an interesting one, though, because this kind of depends on you to do some homework. And it's not just a, hey, here's a checklist of things to buy, go buy these. It's a, how many calories do I need to complete this course? And, you know, when you come to the start line, do you have enough calories with you to finish the course? The scenario here this year is that, you know, there's been a natural disaster in your area. Your house and family are okay, but you've reported to a staging area to help others in the community. Well, when you do that, you don't want to become a drain on the resource, the already limited resources that are in that affected area. So you have to be self-sufficient when you arrive. Well, you have to arrive with enough calories, right? You have to arrive with enough tools in order to do the job and to be self-sustaining. And, and that's kind of the, the premise of the challenge.
0: What's good about this too, is I believe that it would help people begin to build their bug out bag in such a way that they would know that they have everything in this particular scenario that would be necessary, which would begin to extrapolate out to many other scenarios, allowing them to feel very comfortable in their preparedness in a myriad of different situations that may occur within their environmental factors.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a. As I said, it's not just a test of your skills and capability, but it's also a test of your equipment and your loadout and your ability to plan. Um, All those things kind of kind of go together.
0: How long should people expect to be spending on this particular day in order to complete this challenge?
1: Well, I, I think you should plan on being there the whole day. I know that.
0: Um, oh, I figured that, but I'm talking hours here. Are we talking sunrise, sunset situation?
1: Uh, no, no. I, I Like, in, in terms of how long it takes to run the course, um, I think two hours would be a long time. Um, I mean, it, it might be around that two-hour mark. But, I mean, we want people to compete as individuals, as teams, and and as families. And so, you know, with that in mind, we don't want to make it a 10-mile hike. It's a movement around a different point. So there's some navigation and map reading that goes along with that. But we want the predominant amount of time to be spent on skills and and demonstrating proficiency. But then there's also an opportunity to talk to the other contestants, to talk to the proctors at each one of the stations and learn something from that, too. So, for example, after you've finished at a station and you're done, you got your score, you can ask the proctor, hey, Somebody been through here already today that did it better than me, had something better than me, had a better, you know, had a better tool, had a better, you know, loadout. Uh, and you can learn from that just going through that process also. And, and the reverse of that's true also. Even if, you know, if you are serving as a a proctor or scorekeeper at a station or an actor at a station, you can learn from what the people that come through the course demonstrate. Yes. Right? So it's bi-directional learning and, And fun, I I mean, I go back to the idea we wanna have, we wanna make it fun.
0: American contingency at its core, when it was started, was about this getting off the couch and being more involved in the community, being your own first responder. And we have since continued to grow this out to this idea that we really want families to be involved. And we want kids of all ages to understand the importance of being prepared and how they could actually be of service to the family within these kind of disaster preparedness scenarios, rather than just being the one, you know, carry my backpack, mom. How will families who sign up for this and Participate together, be more united in the future, knowing that they have these skills that they have adapted together.
1: It's like the development of any team. The team becomes stronger when they see that they can be interdependent upon one another, right? Kids kind of have this built-in idea that mom and dad are they're here to protect me, they're here to take care of me. Any problem that I come up, they can handle. And I think it's really good for the kids to see that mom and dad need help sometimes and to give the kids very specific tasks that they can help with, they can be responsible for. Um, You know, and you kind of mentioned carrying a backpack. Everybody should have their own backpack. I don't need to carry your stuff, right? You carry your stuff. There's some learning and mindset that goes on there, even with parents. I, you know, as parents, we're like, "Let me get all the stuff together for my kids and, and find a bag so I can carry it." Well, let them do some of the work. Let them earn some of the benefit that comes from having those tools and supplies there. And you know, the kids can learn some independence in a controlled environment. They can, and that that kind of leads to this confidence, right? anxiety and fear come from a lack of confidence and confidence is earned through experience so if we give the kids opportunities to experience this earn this experience they gain the confidence and they're not so freaked out when things happen there's like oh this is just like what we did at the camp out they don't call it training you know this is what we did at the camp out okay i got this
0: I've been watching some shows recently where it seems that families find themselves in peril and often the kids don't seem to be emotionally resilient in the time, in that moment when they need to be in lot, I get emotions and wanting to cry and things of that nature, but there's a part of me that just wants to yell, buck up. Like this is, this is the do or die moment. And I really feel like there's an opportunity for kids to gain that experience. You realize like, yeah, we're a kid, we've got emotions. We want to express those emotions. But at the, moment right now, we really need to build this fire. We need to survey the scene. We need to make sure our our shelter is defended and we need to make sure we're prepared for the nightfall you know, when you hear me say that kind of thing, like I know there's gonna be a lot of parents who might be helicopter parents who might be a little too hovery at times. It might be like, I don't know if my kid's prepared or ready for this. I mean, is it now the time to put them in a situation where it's a controlled environment and they're able to learn from all of these knowledgeable people around them? And honestly, when do you decide to teach the kid confidence if not now?
1: Right, no, 100%, I agree with that. And, you know, we can go back to the building a fire example. You know, if you're in this extremist situation and you, you know, you're you're trying, you're trying to get some form of shelter together, you're trying to get a fire started, you know, it'd be really nice to say, kids, go get some kindling wood and some firewood. And they already know what to go get. They're not, what is that? Dad, is this one okay? You know, mom, what about this one? They just know what to do and they go get it. It's way more stressful on you in the moment, and it's way more stressful on them in the moment if you know we're having to learn on the fly. Yeah. Let them learn. Let them make mistakes in a controlled environment so when you're in an uncontrolled environment, the mistakes cost a lot less.
0: There's so many of these that seem like they intertwine and whether the stations will be set up this way or not. When I look at situational awareness and we have it perform an expedient area study, that seems to tie in really well with outdoor skills of constructing a field expedient shelter, which those two in themselves seem to tie in really well within the security and defense of being able to defend in an unfamiliar location. When you chose these, did you notice the similarities within them so that people really come out of this building an overall preparedness index for themselves?
1: It's on purpose. An area study is just a field expedient area study you can do you can practice doing this when you stop to get gas right instead of just standing there you know you you put the nozzle in the car and you you clamp it down and you pull your phone out and you start doing your phone look around how many other cars are there how many people are at those cars how many cars are empty how many are you know hey what are the entrances and exits what's everybody doing how many people are in the store Anybody running out of the store, I mean, that might be a sign, right? Be aware of your surroundings. That plays into where you choose to build a shelter. It plays into how you defend yourself in an unfamiliar location. All of these things kind of play into an area study. Yeah, that unfamiliar location might be out in the woods somewhere, or it might be in the grocery store. We see a video here in the last week or two of a family, um, I think it was the mom and then the little girl, and then the dad was lagging behind. And, you know, this guy runs up and tries to snatch a little girl and run off with her. Well, if it hadn't been for dad lagging behind, mom never would have seen it. I mean, that guy would have been 100 yards down the sidewalk before she saw what happened, right? So these things happen kind of no matter what setting you're in. So the area study just teaches us to open our eyes and be aware. And And defense is just, you know, how would I defend or protect myself in this area, you know, in, in this set of circumstances. I mean, here's a great example, right? When you get out of the car to put gas in the car, do you lock the door?
0: No, but I know that you should, because that's how women can get their purses snatched from the other side. Uh, now, that's my, how
1: your car can be driven off. Well, yeah.
0: mind you, too, um uh, my car, all the doors are locked. They, it locks itself. So other than the driver's side door that I'm literally standing next to, um, and i don 't get on the phone. I have this whole thing where I literally just stand there and I look around um because i <laughs> because I work with Amcon. Right. <laughs> so
1: so all of these things are a skill right I mean and, and they 're acquired and they're things that you need to practice and you know this is just an opportunity, a fun environment non non threatening environment um, where you can practice those things, and we make it a competition, put a little bit of pressure on you. But not so much that it's, you know, nobody should take this as, you know, life and death circumstances. It's supposed to be fun.
0: It it has this connotation to it. Just looking at this list of something that is just going to be a joy to learn some of these skills. Another couple that I paired together was uh, stopping bleeding and evacuating an injured injury, spit that out Mm -hmm. 10 times, that's under medical, but then also you can pair it up with mobility where you have movement with injuries and also route planning, right? And this is something that a lot of people we go hiking. Everybody loves to talk about how much they love the outdoors. Oh, let's go on a weekend hike. I mean, you can twist your ankle on like a 1% grade. This is not something that takes a lot. I mean, I watched somebody one time completely just fall on a sidewalk, just walking in normal weather conditions. So now you have an opportunity to learn how to stop bleeding, evacuate an injury, which I assume just means cleaning the injury out. Also being able to uh, create a route that you could then move with those injuries to get yourself to some level of safety.
1: Yeah. You know, route planning is becoming a lost art. I mean, here you go, you know, plan your route. Uh, they wouldn't know what to do. I need Siri. I need Google Maps or Waze or whatever. Um, and and even those, while those are good tools, and I, I look at all of those as tools, right? We should We should take advantage of the best tool that we have available, and if that's my GPS-enabled phone, then great, I should use that. But if I don't have that, I shouldn't be completely lost. Right. Right? That's route planning. And I need to take into account who's with me. How are they going to be able to traverse this? If I'm doing this, if I'm running this course with my family, can they go up and over that hill? Or do we need to walk around that hill? Right? I mean... It, it, it's just learning how to take all of those things and, and really be thoughtful and mindful about what you do. And, you know, I mean, bleeding control, I mean, we run into that all the time, whether it's, you know, it, it's really wound management, right? I mean, it's how do you clean and dress something so it doesn't get infected? Or if you do have a serious injury, you know, and that can, we can step this up again based on skill level, but you have, you know, a, a serious injury that can, I mean, we had a, um, not too long ago, a couple of months ago now, a hockey player that died from getting gashed with a skate, right? I mean, in a a sport that we let seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds play, you can die, right? For lack of bleeding control. Yeah. So, um, you know, understanding And it kind of goes to the assessment, right? Being able to assess the situation and assess the severity of the situation is pretty important because, you know, it it reminds me of our youngest daughter when she was little, fell and broke her arm. And my wife called me on the phone and said, I I think she broke her arm. And I said, we'll see if she can move her fingers, right? If you break your arm, your, uh, your forearm, I mean, you can move your fingers, but it hurts like an SOB, so you don't, right? Um. Well, I mean, it's just learning how to do those assessments to figure out how bad and what the criticality of the moment is, and then preparing your response accordingly.
0: I really like the route planning idea. What When I mean, you were describing the idea of GPS and stuff, That's that's like chunked up really high. I was on a hiking trip not too long ago with a friend, and we were just going to go up the backyard of my old place. And he's like, okay, what are we going to do? I'm like, well, we're, let's, let's look and see what the terrain and how it undulates and what kind of barriers we might have in front of us he's like no i thought we would just charge straight up the hill and that's literally what he wanted to do but then he would find himself in very uncomfortable situations trying to maneuver around rocks and boulders that i'm like this is why i'm away over here because i can look up a mountain and i can see like that little kid from the family circus cartoon from the 80s where it's like he was going all over the place i see the most attainable route up a mountain and i don't think a lot of people even have that ability to look up a mountain and say, okay, this. this is where we should go because I see that one particular hurdle 500 yards ahead. Let's go ahead and start getting ourselves around that down here rather than finding ourselves 10 feet away from it. And then perhaps on, you know, a very steep gradient trying to maneuver around something that never needed to be in front of us to begin with.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why we need to get outside, but I I also want to be really um, careful and clear, right, that these things can happen in, um, in in the woods, they can happen in rural areas, suburban, urban office buildings, you know, the crisis moments happen everywhere, and our ability to be able to respond to them shouldn't be, you know, so tightly bound to a location, you know, it's like starting a fire, I mean, there's a great example of starting a fire, that seems to be the one we or gravitating toward. Um you know, I go back to when this polar vortex dipped down into Houston and people didn't know how to start a fire in their fireplace. Because it was for show. Right. They they had no they had no supplies. They didn't didn't know how to start it. They wouldn't know how to maintain it. Um so that fire doesn't necessarily have to be a campfire.
0: I have watched people get confused on how to open their flue. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: So the, it's, and that'll it's, kill you. I mean,
1: <laughs> you, you, you mess that up, that can kill you.
0: You will give yourself carbon monoxide poisoning in like two minutes. So In our yeah. fire, the way it works is if it doesn't hit a certain temperature until it reaches a certain temperature inside the fireplace... Uh, The way the wind comes down the chimney uh, causes the smoke to want to come into the house. So we have to get it to a very, uh, I don't know what the temperature is, but I know it's very specific because as soon as I hit it, the smoke goes directly up. right and so i and so i i have to monitor how am i starting this fire with things that won't produce a lot of smoke so cardboard uh leaves silly things like that Uh, little branches off our christmas tree don't do it with those because that will definitely fill my living room up with smoke so solid hard pieces of kindling that are really tiny will actually produce the temperature much quicker getting the smoke out and uh it's just very interesting until you've experienced that once or twice and sort of played around with things. And that's what I think the adventure challenge is going to give people an opportunity to do like knot tying my dad, we gave him a knot tying book for Christmas one time. And he sat there and off the top of his head knew like 20 different knots. And I saw somebody on a TV show the other day, trying to tie a rope around a tree so they could use it to help everybody on this little situation in this scene, get pull themselves up this very steep mountain. And the TV show just completely blows over the fact that that all of a sudden the rope is just tied to the tree. But I'm like, nobody would probably know how to take one long 30 foot piece of rope and get it around that tree and knot it correctly. It's not a shoelace ropes, ropes this thick and I'm like an inch and a half in diameter. Do not tie like a shoelace, but yet there are knots that are specifically built in order to be able to achieve that directive.
1: You just need to put yourself in those circumstances you know it it is a lot of times we say we want to get comfortable being uncomfortable um i don't i don't necessarily look at it as being uncomfortable i look at it as a learning opportunity right and and so if i'm there and the task you know like and this is part of the reason why we publish these tasks early in the year right so people can look at them and they know what they're going to be tested on uh, and it's not all of these. We've selected about half of them, I think, that will actually be used. And we're keeping that list a secret. But, you know, these are all things that you can use. If you learn all of these skills, you will be better prepared. And, you know, next year we'll come out with, we'll add some more items to it. We'll have a whole nother list and a whole nother scenario. And we'll run through, you know, this this whole thing again in in a way, and my desire is that we do it in a way that's relevant to you and your environment. You know, if you live in the suburbs and you work downtown and you don't even have a tent, man, doing a lot of this stuff out in the woods is not what's practical for you. It would be more practical to do this in a park Kid fell off the monkey bars or something. You know, you work through those scenarios and, and do all of the same things, learn all of the same skills, but practice it in a context that's relevant to you.
0: One of the interesting things that I have noticed when I discuss this adventure challenge with my friends, associates, and just explaining to them what we're doing here at American Contingency is uh, some of them will come back with, well, that just... if." seems embarrassing if I'm going to try to get my people in my neighborhood to all get together in the local park. And we're going to teach each other how to set a child's broken forearm because they fell off the monkey bars. And there's this almost like they're creating this feeling of embarrassment and trying to learn these skills that you know, back in the day, our society was much more prone to just learning because we existed more outside and less on devices. What are your thoughts around those people who are creating that feeling of potential? potential embarrassment, or I'm going to look weird, or all the neighbors are going to think my family's weird if we're all in the front yard practicing how to set a broken bone or start a fire or, you know, figuring out bug out bags with everybody in the driveway.
1: So I go back to the definition of weird or abnormal, right? If you're the only family in the neighborhood doing it, then by definition, you are abnormal, right? Because normal is to sit on the couch and wait for somebody else to come take care of you when bad things happen. It has to start somewhere, and I would rather be embarrassed than incapable of taking care of my family. To me, those are the two kind of polar extremes. If I'm too embarrassed to do this, then I have to accept the fact that if my kid falls in the yard and gashes their leg open, and they got, you know, this arterial bleed going on, even with a stellar response time of seven minutes, she's going to bleed out before the fire department gets there. And I have to be okay with that. And That's I don't think a, lot, don't and think like a lot of parents are okay with that, but they don't they don't put it into the proper context. It's like, oh, we'll just call the fire department. And they'll come take care of it. Okay. I want you to go right now and look up the average response time of your fire department. And I want you to understand that you have to be responsible until they get there. Right. Yeah, because
0: in my, in my county, it's a volunteer. It's right down the street. It's volunteer, yeah. but the firehouse is empty. I went over there one time and knocked on the door to, just to say hi, and nobody responded because there's no fire, and they don't go. So imagine wherever they're at, they then have to get there, and even at the best response time, they still have lives. So you got to imagine 15 minutes to leave and get to the fire station, and then another seven minutes to get to my house. What am I going to do for those 21 minutes? Am I going to sit out in front of the house with a marshmallow and some graham crackers and chocolate and watch my entire life burn down?
1: There's a chance that what I'm saying here comes across as harsh, but you know, life is, I don't do this all the time, but generally, when we get into this kind of discussion, I say that the people who we call first responders are really second responders, because you're always there first. Yes. Right? You're always there first.
0: Yes, that's not an insult to say that. That is literally no. just labeling out exactly what it is.
1: And And so if you're the first one there, what do you do? Right. You know, if if you're the first one there, what do you do until professional help gets there? And if it's a large scale event, if it's a tornado, if it's an earthquake, I mean, you've been in L.A. when there were earthquakes. I've been around tornadoes. We've been around wildfires, hurricanes. How long does it take them to come get you? It can take a really long time. It does not take long at all for your body to give up on you. You can go three minutes without air, you know, three days without water, do you you have a fire extinguisher in the kitchen? And and if you do, then why do you? Well, in case there's a kitchen fire, it's like, right. Fire department's only seven minutes away. On average, in the United States, fire department's seven minutes away. Well, your house can be fully involved in seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And by the way, just because they get there in seven minutes doesn't mean they're putting water on it in seven minutes. Right? So if they arrive on the scene and they see flames, your house is lost. They're not putting that fire out in time to save the house. So, you know, all of these things kind of lead us to this position where we have to we have to understand what's possible from services, infrastructure and services, and what we have to be responsible for. And then learn those skills and be prepared i might not be able to save my house but i can get my family and the important things out of my house and you know at the end of the day i can replace the house most of the things i can replace i can't replace the people right so let's let's prioritize let's do the things we have to do to protect life and then we can go go to protecting property Maybe by then we've got some professional help on the scene or neighbors are showing up or something, but we can't just sit there and wring our hands and say, oh, what do we do now? That's not going to get it done. I can tell how much
0: you are into this conversation based off of your many examples and the emotional charge I see in your face right now. I want to get you out of here on this because I think we could turn this into a three hour long conversation about preparedness because we live in a society that seems to think that we are above the fray, that we don't exist in the same kind of environment that we always have. And I had this epiphany the other day, watching some environmental show that the only thing that makes us think that we're more advanced than we were in 1955 or 1870. You know what it was? It was the 1883 and the 1923 shows on the Paramount+. Plus. And I watched this and I'm like, wow, they just went from going across the Oregon Trail and dysentery killing them, right? Now, all of a sudden, just 40 years later, now they've got motor cars and, you know, there electricity's coming and there's washer and dryers. And we think we're more advanced because we have this supercomputer in our pocket all the time. But anybody who's ever lost control of their vehicle at 30 miles an hour, or anybody who's ever slipped accidentally on a mountain and lost their footing, realizes how quickly we actually can lose control when we think we have control. That control is a very, it is so limited. It's so finite. Have you ever lost, I mean, somebody go out there and lose control of your car at 30 miles an hour where the brakes aren't going to work. You're on ice. I promise you, you will feel like you're going 100 miles an hour towards that tree. What is the message that we want people to understand when it comes to this idea that we are not above Mother Nature's wrath, let alone accidents and unforeseen circumstances? And why is it important that we pull our heads up from this phone and actually take action in our lives so that we're prepared for the unforeseen crises or just any given Tuesday?
1: I think it comes back to normalcy bias. We have, uh, you know, our mind tricks us and says, you know, this is normal. Take a a child with a broken arm. You take a house on fire. And a lot of times you'll have, you know, when the fire department arrives on the scene, the homeowner will be standing there, just standing there, slack-jawed watching the house burn. They don't, this is so out of, out of my context of reality that I don't even know, I don't know what to do next. I, I, I don't, I don't understand. And I've been in that place. I, you know, um... several times in my life where there were, you know, high stress things that happened. I, our daughter had a wreck and, and, and we're dealing with all the things from that. And something as simple as dialing the phone to call my other daughter and tell her, you know, what was going on. I couldn't figure out how to dial the phone. Right. So, so these things happen to people and, and, you know, shock is a real thing separate and apart from stress. Um, and so we have to understand what things we can control and worry more about those than we do about the things that are going to be outside of our control. And so we talk a lot about causative events versus practical impacts, right? And, and a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about causative events. Oh, there's going to be an EMP. Oh, there's going to be a, a riot. Oh, there's going to be a this. Oh, there's going to be a that. Okay, great. But what happens after that? What's the practical impact to me? Is it a tornado comes through here? Great. It's going to rip the roof off my house. It might blow my windows out. I won't have a place to stay. The electricity is probably going to be out. How do I mitigate all of those? Because I can't control a tornado. But I can control how prepared I am for the practical impacts that follow a tornado. Those are very well known. We know what they are. We've got plenty of experience dealing with those. Those are the things that I need to be prepared for, and I, I can't ch- I can't run out in the yard and just wave the tornado around the house. It doesn't work that way. So I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time worrying about that. It's either on the track for my house or it's not. You, you know, I, I can't I can't spend those mental cycles on things that I can't change. So this gives us, you know, the the adventure challenge is just one little teeny tiny piece of giving us some practical experience, controlling the things that we can control and and learning how to do that. Some of those are learned skills and and kind of releasing us from the idea or at least getting us out of the context of the causative event. Okay, yeah, there's been this natural disaster. All this has happened now. Here are the things you need to go do. And then we go do them. Uh, and I think through doing that, you know, we we kind of get beyond this roadblock or obstacle for a lot of people that is the cause of event. And and we actually get to the practical things that we can do in the areas that we can control.
0: Beautifully said. I think we'll end down that one. What we're going to do in the future, guys, out there in listener land is we're going to start bringing on some of the regional coordinators after they've put on these events so that we can... Have you be introduced to them and what they've learned and what they were able to experience, because I think it's going to be a very exciting for our membership. And for those of you who are interested in being a part of the 2024 American Contingency Adventure Challenge and aren't members, it's very easy to do that. You can go to AmericanContingency.com slash join. I've also put a link for that in our show notes um, it's on our primary page, memberships for literally the cost of less than a value meal at a fast food restaurant. If any of y'all still eat at those places, uh, although it is actually more, exp- our membership, I went to a fast food restaurant about a month ago. Our membership is actually about uh, a th- two thirds of the cost of a value meal now at McDonald's. And McDonald's value meals, like 15 bucks, our membership at the highest rate is $10 right now. If you're listening to this on Valentine's day of 2024, if you want to be involved in the adventure challenge, then by all means join, become a member. If you are a member, then you already know about this. Your regional coordinator has been talking about this. We've already got them all scheduled. You can begin to prepare for this. Our first one is in April. We will have that regional coordinator come on after the fact so they can discuss what they learned. And then we can all learn together tear everybody together, everybody achieves more. Thanks for coming on, Tom, and talking about the American Contingency Adventure Challenge. Uh, maybe in the third or fourth iteration of this, we can actually uh, be able to do like a really cool one where it, it would be a house that's just suffered from a tornado or an earthquake. It's just gone down. And how would somebody turn their gas off in California? That was the number one thing I asked my landlord when I moved in is where is the primary gas line for our apartment complex? And he told me, don't worry about it. You'll never need to mess with it. I'm like, when an earthquake goes down, I promise you, I'm going to need to mess with it. And so he showed me where it was, even uh, gave me access to the key to, turn it off. And then I went and taught everybody else in my apartment complex how to do that because I did not want our house to blow up after it didn't crumble because of an earthquake. So there are things you guys can learn out there. Please join the American Contingency, become a part of this adventure challenge. I can assure you it will help you grow. It will help you family. It will help you feel confident in the face of the storm. When you're ready to build the skills, the network, and the confidence to be ready for whatever comes next, join us at AmericanContingency.com. We're here when you're ready. We'll keep the fire going for you so you can find your way. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.